According to Oxford Languages Online, in the or adjective form, the term counterfeit means made in exact imitation of something valuable or important with the intention to deceive or to fraud or defraud. The definition of the word counterfeit, which we're all probably familiar with, means made in the exact imitation of something valuable or important with the intention to deceive or defraud. Now, this term counterfeit can be applied to any number of different things. You can counterfeit something, you can counterfeit a painting, or you can counterfeit a document, but primarily we think in terms of money, do we not, when we hear the word counterfeit? In fact, you may not want to know this, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. The U.S. Department of Treasury estimates that between $70 million and $200 million worth of simply $20 bills in circulation in the United States are actually counterfeit 20s. I say the $20 bill because it's the most common bill to be counterfeit here in the continental U.S. Apparently overseas it's a $100 bill. I don't know why we counterfeit 20s here, but hundreds overseas. I can't explain that to you. But there's between $70 million and $200 million worth of counterfeit $20 bills in circulation is the estimate. And that means that one or two out of every 100 20s is actually a counterfeit. So if you do the math, in a group this size where there's roughly 400, 500 people here, there's a handful of counterfeit $20 bills. I'm not going to ask you to pull out your wallets and see if you can figure out which ones they are. And I don't want you to be distracted by that reality, but the fact of the matter is, most of them pass through our hands without us ever even realizing it. How many of us would be able to recognize a counterfeit $20 bill if we saw it? Even now that we know that some of them are $20 bills that are counterfeit, how many of us could recognize that. For most of us, identifying a counterfeit currency isn't really that critical in our lives. We receive them as genuine currency, we pass them along to others as genuine currency, never recognizing that they are actually fake bills. And yet that doesn't really have a significant impact on our lives. However, our topic for this morning involves something that is counterfeit that is far more significant. A counterfeit that we may be missing, a counterfeit that many have missed because they didn't realize it was the case. Our text this morning here in John, or 1 John chapter 2, here John warns his readers about a counterfeit truth. He warns them about a false truth, a fake truth, a phony truth. He warns them that there is a counterfeit gospel based upon a counterfeit Christ being taught by counterfeit Christians. And he wants them to take stock of this because it's incredibly important for them to know the counterfeit when they see it. So he pens these words to warn and encourage the church. In 1 John chapter 2, we'll be reading in verse 18 through 27. Follow along with me. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. 
No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're thankful for the truth of your word. For the fact that there is something unquestionably, authoritatively true in this world. That we don't have to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the cunningness of man, and by any number of human thoughts and initiatives. But Lord, we can rest in the truth of your word. Father, we pray that as we study it here this morning, that you would guide and direct. Lord, that you would speak, that you would challenge our hearts, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, that you would open our eyes to see truth for what it is. Lord, I pray that in our time together this morning, that you would guide and direct, and that you would exalt Christ as first and foremost in our eyes. Lord, I pray that this would be done in his name and for his purposes. Amen. Well, this is almost halfway through our book of 1 John that we've been studying. Um, if you haven't made it for all of the weeks as we've been walking through this, let me attempt to catch you up to speed on where we're at here in this book of 1 John. This 1 John book known as a general epistle, an epistle written to the general church by John, who was one of the apostles of Jesus Christ. He introduces the letter in the first chapter by highlighting the incredible privileges we have in the gospel. And John sets about his task to help his audience, quote, know that they have eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 13, his reason for writing is that they may know that they have eternal life. Now, after introducing that topic, he then begins to move into some evaluations. We've covered these over the last few weeks. He's encouraged the believers to evaluate their own lives through three different grids. First, he encourages them to apply the morality test, to evaluate their own hearts, to see how they respond to sin, how they respond to obedience to Christ, and use that to say, am I truly a believer? Am I truly walking with the Lord? Those who love Christ and his commands and those who reject sin are those who are genuine in their faith. This is the morality test. Then last week, he encouraged them to apply the love test to their own lives, to take a look at their affections and their love for their brothers and sisters in Christ and say, has there been a genuine regeneration in my heart? Has the Holy Spirit, through the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, transformed my heart so that I supernaturally love my brothers and sisters in Christ? He said, evaluate your heart, evaluate your life through this love test. Now this morning, he introduces what I may call the truth test. He asks us to ask the question, what do we believe? What do we profess? What do we confess, if you will? And through this text, I think that John argues that this can be known by looking at two key factors in our lives. By looking at our profession, what we say we believe, what we confess, what we tell people we believe, and also our perseverance. Our profession, what we say, and our perseverance, how we endure, how we move on through life and stay solid on that truth. 
This morning, he introduces these themes. And I want to warn you that as we walk through this text, it's a particularly circuitous passage. It's kind of meandering and goes around in circles, so much so that scholars debate both where the section ends and how the section is to be structured. So some of your Bibles may have this section wrapping up in verse 26 or verse 27 or verse 28 or even verse 29 at the end of the chapter because of John's logic is a little bit meandering, if you will. And so as a result, we're going to take a bit of a unique approach in our time together this morning. We're going to walk through this text, and we're going to highlight a few different pieces that we need to know to help build our understanding of what John is calling us to. So as a result, here's my outline. I'm going to lay it out to you up front so you know what's coming. First, we're going to talk about two burdens that John wants his audience to attend. Two reasons that John is writing this section of the letter. He's saying, I want you to pay attention to these two burdens that I have for you. Next, we're going to talk about two errors to avoid. He's going to address his opponent's faults, where they've gone off track, where they're in error, and we're going to talk about these two errors that he wants them to avoid. And then lastly, we'll talk about two ways to abide, which is where our title for the message this morning as far as abiding in truth comes from. What are John's exhortations to this church in light of the threat that they face? Two burdens to attend, two errors to avoid, and two ways to abide. Let's try to start off by framing this up. First, by looking at the reasons John is writing this section of the letter in particular. Now, recall from our introduction to the letter that John leads into his reasons for writing by saying, I write to you. And here we see these two burdens that John has for his audience, for the church, He makes it very plain by saying, I am writing to you, look at verse 21, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. John writes affirming first the truth. He's writing to affirm that they know the truth, to say they understand the gospel, they don't need someone to give them more information. His focus is affirmation, not new information. Does that make sense? He's trying to affirm them in what they already know. He encourages them, not because they do not know the truth, but because they do know the truth. And John knows, and I believe this is his reason for writing this, is he says that the best defense against error here is not new information, it's not new argumentation, it is the gospel truth they've already come to know and believe. He says, you know what you need to know. And it's interesting to note that he's writing this to a general church. He's writing this to multiple churches, and there's likely a number of new believers in his audience. And yet, John writes this of all believers. He says, you all know the truth. You all, because that's how you came to faith. You understand the truth of the gospel. He doesn't encourage them to wait a few years until they've grown up. He doesn't encourage them to wait until they've read a few more books or watch a few more videos. He doesn't encourage them to wait until they've taken some classes. He says, if you know the gospel, if you are a believer, you know the truth. It's important to note. And so starting off this, as John seeks to address this error, he affirms that all believers already know the truth. If somebody knows the truth of the gospel and has confessed it and believes it, they have everything they need to know because they're a genuine, repentant believer. And yet, there's still a threat to this church. And John wants to make sure that they are paying attention to this threat. And so he also talks about defending the truth. Look at verse 26. Down at verse 26, he says, again, I write these things, the introduction that he's telling us what he's writing for, about those who are trying to deceive you. 
So he says, you know the truth. But there are also those that are trying to deceive you. It is their intent to deceive you. They're trying to take you off, move you away from this foundational truth that you know. And so John writes to help them prevent their deception. He's saying, this is out there, be warned. And that way, John, I think, is using the truth to some degree here like an immunization. Now, I know as of late, immunizations have gotten a bit of a bad rap. I'm not going there, okay? As a general rule, the way immunizations work is you get injected with this, and it prevents the disease from taking hold in your body, right? We know how this works. We know immunology to some degree, and that's essentially what John's doing. He's saying, you know the truth, and the truth is the best defense against error, reaffirm, stand firm on the truth. So John affirms both their knowledge of the truth and he also affirms that this new knowledge that the Gnostics were claiming is extremely deceptive. The Gnostics were coming into this church and they were telling them there is some higher knowledge, there is some new experience, there is some additional thing you need to have in order to understand the higher things of God. And John says, no, you need the gospel. You need to understand the foundational truths. Why? Because truth and error are incompatible. Saying truth presses out error. Error presses out truth. These two things cannot coincide together. They are incompatible. It's like, did you ever do that experience as a kid? You know, that experiment that everybody does as a kid where you put some um, food coloring into some water and then you put some oil in on top of it in the little jar and you shake it up and then you wait and you see what happens. And what happens? Given enough time, the oil and the water will separate out into two different parts. It'll happen every time. No matter how hard you shake it, no matter how much you try to get those things to mix, they'll always separate back out into water and oil. The two pieces are incompatible. And he's saying that's true of truth and error as well. They're trying to mix these things together. They're trying to create this thing that you are supposed to understand and believe. Truth and error are not compatible. You need to know the truth, and that will prevent you from falling for the error. Now, why do we take time to highlight all of that? Why is that relevant for us today? Well, the first thing that I think is worth noting is in verse 21, how he talks about everyone knowing the truth. We need to be reaffirmed. Some of us need to be reminded that if we have placed our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, we can rest in that truth. Our world and our culture today will work just as hard as his culture did then to try and help us believe that we need something extra, that you need these seven steps, that you need this additional knowledge, that you need this additional experience. And some of us as new believers are like, maybe I do need more things. Maybe I do need to experience something else. Maybe I haven't understood correctly. And those of us that are fear, fearful of that need to rest in the truth of the gospel. You don't need more. You don't need some additional experience. You don't need some additional reality. Now, we're going to talk about pursuing truth further here in a minute, but you don't need to chase some additional experience. You don't have to be a believer for very long, and many of you have probably experienced this before. Somebody comes along and he says, hey, I know this additional experience. It will really complete you as a believer. And there's a tendency to be like, I, I, I want to grow as a believer. Here John says, you already know the truth. You don't need some additional experience. You don't need some higher knowledge. You need the truth of the gospel. So if you're a new believer, I would encourage you to consider that you need to rest in that truth. Stand firm on that truth. We'll talk about that more here later. The second thing that I think is worth noting here is that we as believers ought to learn to celebrate the truth. 
Him being able to write to these believers, you know the truth, is critical. And in many ways, it's a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 35. In the Old Testament, there was a prophecy about someday God will write the law on your hearts. And you will have no need to teach one another because God will have written that on your hearts. And in some ways, this is a fulfillment of that. He's saying, because of Christ, because of the Holy Spirit, you now have a genuine knowledge of the truth. God has written his law on your heart. We should celebrate that reality. We have a unique privilege in that. But it also necessitates the fact that we should go on and pursue the truth more. In many ways, that's the whole purpose for his argument. He's saying you should pursue the truth. You should acknowledge the truth. You should seek to grow in your knowledge of the truth. You may recall what Jesus said in John 17, 17, when he was praying to his father. He says, sanctify them, speaking of believers, in the truth. Your word is truth. Some of us have a tendency to run around looking for all sorts of additional things rather than just focusing on what God's word says. The best way to prevent error is to study the truth, is to study the word of God. How are you investing truth into your life? Are you pursuing the truth? The more truth that you get into your life, the harder it's going to be for error to take hold. I would encourage us to rest in the truth, to celebrate the truth, and to pursue the truth of God's word. We too must recognize this dichotomy between truth and error. As we seek to live in this world, as the world bombards us with any number of different lies and things that we are tempted to believe, what is the safest course of action? Focus on the truth. To recognize that the truth prevents the error. But there is also a threat at play here in 1 John chapter 2. And so John also wants to make clear that there are two errors he wants his listeners to avoid. There are two errors his opponents are guilty of. Now this is actually where John opens up his argument in verse 18. John will make three important statements about these false teachers over the course of this section. The first is simply an implication of their presence. He says their presence indicates the end. Look at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. This is an interesting term. He talks of the end. He speaks of this last hour. Now, there's some terms in the Bible that would be somewhat synonymous to this. The last hour or the last time, the last days. You'll read this in a number of different places throughout your Bible. And there's two different ways this can be understood. There's a more generic understanding, and then there's a specific understanding. Generically, the term the last times or the last days speaks to everything that has occurred post-Christ coming the first time. This last moment of history as Christ has come, as he has paid the penalty for our sin, now we are waiting in this last days, this last time for Christ's second coming to culminate, to consummate everything that he's promised. And then there's a more specific term, the one that people tend to get infatuated with and the one you've probably read multiple books on. The last times being a specific time, like the very final days, the very final moment. In some ways, both now is the last days, and there is a last days of the last days. Does that make sense? And it's not confusing, because we, we refer to things like this all the time, right? We're talking about a football game. We say the end of the game is coming. You might mean the fourth quarter. You might mean the last two minutes. Or you might mean the last few seconds when the Chiefs steal the Super Bowl, right? <laughs> and all of those terms, I'm not a Chiefs hater. Just for the record, like, I don't care. I'm not a huge Super Bowl or I'm not a huge professional football fan. 
But all of those terms, the fourth quarter or the last two minutes or the last few seconds, those can all be rightly referred to as the end of the game. Kind of what John is doing here, and that's what the New Testament and the Old Testament speak to, this idea of the last days, either this generic term or the specific term. Now, it's pretty clear that John has the generic term in mind here. Why do we know that? Because he speaks in the present, right? He says, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Now, clearly what John wasn't trying to say is, like, these are the final days, as in, like, there's only a few days left because we're now 2,000 years after John, right? But he's saying we are in that last era, that last moment, those final days. Now, why does John know that that is the case? This is an interesting argument that he makes here. He says, we know it's the last hour, we know it's the final days because antichrists have come. Now, this is a really interesting word. You may be surprised to learn that it only comes up five times in the entirety of the Bible. And all five of them are used by John. Four of them in this text and one of them in 2 John. Now, what is he talking about? What is this term, antichrist? Again, there's a generic and a more specific way that we use this term. Generically, and I would argue all five of his uses here in 1 John, or four of his uses in 1 John, and then one in 2 John, speak to the idea of a teacher who is denying Christ. One whose ideas, one whose profession is antithetical to that of Jesus Christ. Now, he uses that terminology in 2 John chapter 7, or verse 7. Look, turn to the right. It's just a couple pages to the right in your Bible. 2 John, and he has a fuller description of the way he uses this term. 2 John, verse 7, because there's only one chapter in 2 John. He writes this. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So he's speaking to those that are professing a different Jesus, a different gospel. He refers to them as antichrist. Now, the more common term that we use it, and it's ironic because it's never actually used in the text of our New Testament this way, but when we refer to antichrist, more often than not, we mean the individual at the end times who represents the culmination of all human and satanic rebellion against God, right? We've read the books Left Behind and things like that, right? We think of Nikolai Carpathia, that word, I just can't get his name out of my head, right? We think of that individual. Now, ironically, the terms the Bible uses for him are a little different, though Antichrist is appropriate. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he's called the man of lawlessness. In Revelation 13, he's called the beast. And it's this idea, right? So we say the Antichrist, and we tend to refer to that, but that's not what John has in mind here. And I don't want to lose any of you and get you way off track by going into a discourse on that, because that's not what John's point is here. First John, he wants them to understand that there is this generic term, there are these antichrists, there are these false teachers who stand in opposition to the truth of the gospel and Jesus. And he wants them to know they shouldn't be surprised by their presence. He says this was prophesied, right? It is the last hour, as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Exactly what God said would happen has happened. You shouldn't be shocked by this. You shouldn't be surprised, you shouldn't be worried but you should be warned. Now, having established that these antichrist's existence is unsurprising, John then goes on to explain his two warnings for his audience. First, in verse 19, he describes that the antichrist's departure indicates their defection. Look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Now, John's logic is really critical here. And that sentence is a little bit confusing, probably. 
Okay, John's logic is really critical. He's going to use two terms, from us and of us. This idea from us is the idea of proximity, that they are gathered together. We are together, and if you were to leave, you would go out from us. Versus of us is the idea of that fellowship concept that he talked about earlier. This idea of being a part of the same thing, professing the same truth, being a part of Christ's body. And the argument of that verse is that ongoing presence with the people of God indicates there is a fellowship with the Father and with one another. So therefore, defection or leaving that fellowship is an indication that there is a lack of fellowship. And you see that argument in the verse, right? They would have continued with us, but they were not, or they went out, that they might be complained that they are not of us. His point is that defection from that fellowship indicates a lack of being of us, a lack of being a part of the church. And remember, that was John's argument from the very get-go in the letter. Remember 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, he said this, we say we have fellowship with him, being God, while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's been his argument. Fellowship with God results in fellowship with one another. So rejection of us, rejection of the people of God is an indication of a rejection of God. That's his argumentation here. Now, that being said, I need to make a couple of key clarifications on that subject. The first is keep in mind that John's whole point is that fellowship is a fruit of salvation, not a means to it. He is not saying that participation or fellowship with the church is how we earn salvation. He's saying having been saved, having been regenerate, our participation with the body is an indication of where our heart is at. It's an indication that we have been saved. Now, that brings up the second question, or the second clarification that I need to note. The issue here at play in 1 John is leaving the faith, not leaving one individual assembly of the church. What he is not saying is if someone leaves our fellowship and goes down to Hickman to help plant a church, they are leaving us. I mean, they are leaving us. They're going out from us, but they are still of us, right? Any church that would preach that if you leave this local assembly, you are abandoning the faith and you are anathema to God is speaking heresy. He's not saying that. He is not saying there is one local assembly. He is saying when you go out, when you leave the faith, you prove that you have no fellowship with God or with his people. And he makes that point clear by highlighting the second error of these people. The second error is their denial indicates their ignorance. Look at verse 22 and 23. He makes this explicit. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. You're following his argument. He's saying... Going out, leaving the faith, leaving the fellowship of God's people is an indication that you are denying Christ. These people were denying Jesus Christ. They were denying that Christ was the Messiah, that he was the only way to God. And John makes it explicitly clear that sort of denial of Jesus Christ is the Antichrist. It is that teaching which is antithetical to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Denying Christ is this Antichrist lie that he's talking about. And he also goes on in verse 23 to say that denying Christ is also denying the Father. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. 
That's a really, really critical thing for our moment today. There are millions of people in our culture, there are millions of people around the world that will say all paths lead to God. It doesn't matter if you're Buddhist, it doesn't matter if you're Muslim, it doesn't matter if you're Christian, it doesn't matter if you're, the list goes on and on and on. All these paths essentially just lead to God anyway. John says here, unequivocally, denying Christ means you do not possess God. That is critical for us to acknowledge today. That's why we read from John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus Christ is the only pathway to God. And John reaffirms that again and again. In fact, he says these antichrists, their denial of Christ indicates that they are ignorant of the Father. They do not know God at all. Here's his point. Antichrists are those that deny Christ and depart from his people. It is proved in their lives. They deny Christ as the Messiah, as the only way to God, and they depart from his people and go their own way. Not leaving the individual church, but leaving the historic profession of the faith. That's his point. And you'll note both the profession and the perseverance errors that we introduced with. He, he speaks to this error of profession, right? What we claim, what we say, and he says they are denying Christ. They are saying Christ is not the only way. And then there's this error of perseverance where they are going out, they are departing from God's people. So they are failing to profess Christ and they are failing to persevere in the faith. Now what are the applications of this? What is the relevance of this for our lives? First thing that I would note is that this is an incredible warning to be heeded. If you are here this morning and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, by John's definition, you stand in opposition to Jesus Christ, believing the lie, believing that which is antithetical to what Jesus has taught. If you think that all ways lead to Christ or that anybody can get to God, you are standing in opposition to the true articulation of the gospel. And let me encourage you that there is a warning you need to heed. There is a genuine concern here for the sake of your salvation. You cannot be indifferent to the person of Jesus Christ and profess to know God. That term that's popular in our culture today, right? I'm not very religious, but I'm pretty spiritual. For most people, what that means is I'm not really big on the church, I'm not really big on Jesus, but I like to pray now and then. Let me warn you, that is not a gospel that saves. That is not what John is advocating here, and yet... So long as you draw breath, the opportunity still stands before you. You may stand in opposition to Jesus Christ this morning and declare him as the way, the truth, and the life this afternoon. That opportunity is before you right now. Would you recognize your sin, recognize your inability to stand righteous before a holy God, fall on your face before the cross and say, Christ, you are the only one that could do it and you are the only way to the Father. I trust you and you alone for my salvation. You may stand currently today in opposition to Jesus, but you don't have to stay that way. Let me appeal to you to rest in Christ's sufficiency on your behalf today, right now. To ask him to save you and to rescue you and redeem you now. John 14 verse 6 says, Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. But for the believer, I think there's also a caution here. There's a caution of perseverance. 
Because these antichrists, these individuals, were once a part of the body. They sat with the rest of the Christians, and then at some point they abandoned that and they went away. There's a caution to persevere in our faith, to guard our faith, and to corporately profess our faith again and again and again. This is why we declare the Lord what Christ has done in baptism. And this is why we declare what Christ has done in communion. This is why I preach, hopefully, the gospel week in and week out, because every single one of us needs to be reminded that we know the truth and we need the gospel and we must never shake on that foundation. That is what saves, that is what redeems, and that is what holds us. We don't need to move beyond the gospel. We need to be reminded again and again and again, don't give that up. This is why we profess our faith together. Because we too must guard against these errors, these errors of profession denying Jesus Christ and these errors of perseverance and walking away from his people and abandoning everything that is true. But as I've mentioned here before in 1 John, and again, it is true in this text, the bulk of John's argument is not to address the errors. Because he writes assuming his audience is primarily composed of believers, those who have placed their faith in Christ. So finally, and most significantly, he gives us two ways to abide. Two ways to abide. Now, you may have noticed as I read through this text that there are only actually two explicit commands in these verses. Two things that we are told to do that John tells his listeners to do. They're found in verse 24 and verse 27. The first is a command to let truth abide. Look at verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. His exhortation is somewhat of a passive exhortation. It's not go and do, it's allow something to abide. He's saying, let it continue to abide. Continue in what you first heard. Continue in the truth of the gospel. Don't move beyond that. Stand firm. That word abide literally means to stay or to remain. To abide, to stand firm, to not budge, to not move. He says, abide in what you have already heard. And the implication of that is, if you abide in that truth, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. He said, you want to know God? Stick with the truth of the gospel. Don't move on to some extra knowledge. You don't need that. Abide in the truth of the gospel. And that is just a continuation of his argument from verse 23. Look at verse 23b. We read the first part. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but the, contra- or the counter is true too. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And anyone who confesses Christ as their Savior has the Father. His implication is continuing in the truth. Abiding in the truth is equal to continuing to confess Christ. We continue to confess Christ. We continue to proclaim Christ. We continue to abide in that reality and that truth. His exhortation to the church is hold fast to the truth. Don't ever slip on the truth. Continue to profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's a second more active abiding that John has in mind as well, and that is to abide in Christ. Look at verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. It says abide in the truth, but also abide in Christ. So his foundation for this abiding is really interesting. I don't know if you picked up on that. He speaks to this idea of being anointed, but the anointing that you receive 
from him abides in you. And in that way, he's kind of picking up on some of the language of the Gnostics to try and turn it on its head and explain the truth to the people. But if we understand anointing correctly, we have to understand or answer two key questions. The first is, anointed by who? This idea of anointing is the idea of pouring oil. The Old Testament uses it a lot. So this idea of having oil applied or having this special reality applied to you, but who is applying that and what are they applying? Well, both have already been addressed back in verse 20. Go back to verse 20. Like I said, we're jumping around a little bit, but follow with me. Verse 20, he says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge, anointed by the Holy One. So that is who is applying this anointing, but who is the Holy One? Now let me give you a hint as far as biblical interpretation. When you go to understand a term that isn't immediately clear from the context, first you look at the verses around and say, can I understand it? Not a lot of hints here. But you go to the broader reading of John. The next place we would go is, how does John, how does this author use this term? And we learn that in John 6, verse 68 and 69, and again in Revelation 3, verse 7, John uses the term, the Holy One of Jesus Christ. So we can read verse 20, but you have been anointed by Christ. So Christ is applying this anointing, which leads us to our second question. What is he anointing us with? This one is just a bit trickier, and we could go a number of different places in the text, but I think the clearest is actually Paul's use of this same terminology in 2 Corinthians 1. Keep your finger in 1 John and turn to the left to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is making a very similar argument to the Corinthians in his second letter to them here in these verses. And he uses the same terminology, and I think it clarifies this question for us. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22. I hear the page is flipping, so I'm going to give you a second. I want everybody to find it for themselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes, establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. Notice the similar themes, right? Then verse 22, And who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He's wanting to encourage them to help them understand this anointing that they have received is the Holy Spirit and it is the seal awaiting Christ's second return. Is this guaranteed to the believer? And John uses the same way here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. But you have all been anointed by the Holy One, by Christ, and so you have all knowledge. Why? Because the Holy Spirit helps us rightly interpret the Word of God. So the anointing, the Holy One is Christ. What has been anointed on us is the Holy Spirit. He's going to speak more of the Holy Spirit later in the book, but he's helping them understand you all have believed the gospel. You all have received the Holy Spirit. You don't need some second anointing. You don't need some second experience. Why? Because when you profess faith in Christ, you receive the Spirit. The Spirit guides you into truth, and that's what you need to found your life on. And it's fascinating because he says the exact same thing here as far as the benefits, right? What are the benefits? Go back down to verse 27 of this receipt of the Spirit, this one-time indwelling of the Spirit, right? And you have no need that anyone should teach you. This benefit is you now know everything. Now, some of you are like, oh, well, that's great, Brad. Thanks for that, and I'm, I'm out, right? I don't need this. I could do something else with these 45 minutes. That's not what he means, okay? And we know it's not what he means because John doesn't mean that no teachers are necessary. Why? Because John is writing a letter teaching these people. He would be contradicting himself if he's saying, you know everything, you don't need anything. You know, I've got the Holy Spirit in me, and I've got all knowledge. That's not his point. 
So it must mean that what they know everything about is they know everything they need to know to defend against this error. You know everything you need to know to know who Christ is and to defend against this error, to abide in Christ. Now his exhortation then at the end of verse 27, I love this, is abide in him. Abide in him. We've talked about that. Abide is one of John's favorite words. In fact, I think it's something like 42 or 41 out of the 44 times it's used in the entire New Testament is John using it. He's a big fan. This idea of abiding, this idea of standing firm and sticking where you are and not moving off of this point. So what in the world does it mean to abide in him, to abide in Christ? Well, I think we can easily backtrack a bit in 1 John and say that abiding in Christ involves everything that John has already said. Abiding in Christ means doing and loving and behaving in the ways that he's already encouraged you to do. Let me do a little bit of a revive or a rewind here. Abiding in Christ, according to John's definition, so far in the book of 1 John, means believing his gospel, chapter 1, verse 3. It means experiencing his joy, chapter 1, verse 4. It means obeying his commands, chapter 1, verse 5. It means loving his people, chapter 2, verse 7 through 17. It means receiving this anointing of the Holy Spirit and confessing the truth, chapter 2, verse 23. John's definition of abiding with Christ is pursuing Christ through obeying his commands and being with his people and loving his word and spending time with. He's saying, abide with Christ. You don't need to move on to something else. You've already got the truth. Abide in that truth. Abide with Christ. And both of these stem from this desire to know Christ and to further our relationship with him. And this, this, this thing that John is trying to help us understand is like the more you know about Christ the more he will reveal about himself. And the more you know about him, the more you will want to know him more. It's this sort of repetitive cycle, like the more you realize who Christ is, the more you will want to know him more. The more you will long to abide with him, the more you will love his word and love his people and obey his commands and reject sin that causes an interruption in your relationship with him. His point is that true believers abide in Christ, abide in truth, and abide in his word. That is what it means to abide in Christ, to abide with Christ, is to love his truth, to love his word, to love his people, to spend time with him. And notice that this is both an exhortation of profession and an exhortation of perseverance as well. Did you see that? He encourages them to profess the truth, abide in truth. And then he encourages them to persevere in that truth, to abide in Christ. To profess and to persevere. Now, why is that relevant for us today? This is where we're getting a little bit heady theologically. This reality of believers are those that persevere and profess the truth is what theologians have historically known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints is this understanding that those who have come to know God, those who have received the gospel, will persevere to the end. And those that persevere to the end, continuing to profess faith in Christ, are those that have believed the gospel. That sounds somewhat redundant. It's intentionally done that way. It is this idea of perseverance. That while we're called to strive and to work and to pursue, ultimately we rest in the fact that Christ has done it all. That's precisely been John's point. Notice there was a verse in these verses that I never read as we were walking through it. Did you pick up on it? Verse 25, I never read that. I'm going to go there now. 
Verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So in amongst his exhortations to abide in the truth and to abide with Christ, he reminds them that Christ has made a promise of eternal life to his saints. That the very thing that causes us to strive and to work is actually a work of God in our lives and through us. I think John chapter 6 is instructive here. Turn to the left in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John writes it very similarly here in the words of Jesus Christ. John chapter 6, verse 35 through 40. I think these verses mirror this exact same idea of abiding and striving, but ultimately resting in what Christ has done. The Gospel of John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you may see me, or excuse me, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Ultimately, we strive to abide, we work to abide, but we ultimately rest in Christ having preserved us. Right? His exhortation is abide in Christ, abide in his truth, abide in his word, but ultimately we rest in Christ's promise and Christ's power to preserve us to the end. That's why saints of old have referred to it as the perseverance of the saints. While we are called to strive and to work, we know that it is God who works in us to hold us fast to the end. And so while John does encourage us to apply this theology test, to look at our lives and ask ourselves, what are we professing and how are we persevering? Are we professing? Do we know the truth? Are we falling for this denial of Christ to move away from the essentials of who Christ is? Or are we allowing the truth to abide in us, standing firm on that truth and holding it to the end? And are we persevering? Aware of the deceptions that want to sneak into our hearts? This constant tug to be pulled away from the people of God and to be found off on our own, to be devoured by Satan's devices? We abiding with God's people and abiding in Christ and what he's taught us. This entire text forces us to ask these two big questions. Today, do I believe that Jesus is the Christ, my personal Savior? Am I professing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior today? Not past some time, not I walked an aisle at one point and that was something I used to believe, but are you professing that today? That's an indication that your profession is true and that you believe Christ and you have eternal life. And then the secondary question, will I persevere in that truth to the end? Will I hold fast and abide in that till my dying breath or Christ returns to call me to glory? True believers are those that profess Christ and persevere to the end. John has made the case that true believers hate sin and love obedience. 
True believers are those that love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And here in this section, he says, true believers profess Jesus as the Christ and they persevere to the end. In that way, they reveal where their heart is at. I asked Troy, as we wrapped up here this morning, if he wouldn't be willing to switch our final song to uh, He Will Hold Me Fast. That seemed like the appropriate way to end. So I'm going to pray here briefly, and the worship team is going to come out, and we're going to sing that, and I encourage you to consider the fact that Christ holding you is what causes you to pursue the sort of abiding he's calling us to here. Would you pray with me? What a challenging text to the natural inclinations of our hearts and our culture. We believe it is altruistic to say that all paths lead to God. To say that no one will ultimately reject you and fall under the condemnation in hell. But Lord, we know that a lie is not loving. And your word loves us, or you love us so much you gave us your word to teach us the truth. Lord, I pray that for those sitting here this morning, that you would drive that truth home in their hearts. Or if there's anyone that does not know you, who is ambiguous about Christ or indifferent to Christ, so that you would open their eyes to what they need to know, that they would place their faith in Christ and know what it means to have the promise of eternal life. For the rest of us, Lord, we ask that you would continue to hold us fast, that you would help us to persevere to the end, that you would help us to continually profess the truth of the gospel. Help us to rest in those truths and not ever move away from them. Lord, do in our lives and in our hearts what only you can do. Do it for our sake and do it for Christ's glory. We pray in his name. Amen.